Okay, so I think we'll get started here. We have almost uh, a little over 80 participants. Uh, so uh, welcome to the uh, third meeting of the Fairbank Center's uh, Modern China Lecture Series. Uh, my name is Arunab Ghosh. I teach uh, modern Chinese history here in the history department. Uh, before I introduce our esteemed speaker of the day, I just wanted to remind everyone of our final uh, event this fall. Uh, in two weeks, uh, we will host, on November 10th, in two weeks, we will host uh, Kovel Meiskins from the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, and he'll be delivering a talk uh, titled, Mao's Massive Military Industrial Campaign to Defend Cold War China. So this is a drawing from his recently published book on, on the Third Front uh, during the 60s and 1970s. Uh, I think, um, actually I can post it on chat right now. The, the link is um, already uh, active and you can, I just posted it on chat so you can find information about that talk uh, online and please uh, please register and join us in, in two weeks. Um, okay, so today uh, uh, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Feixian Wang, uh, who will be delivering a talk entitled uh, Everybody Loves Qianlong, uh, ver uh, Vernacular Fantasies, Cultural Consumption, and the Prosperous Age in Post-Imperial China. Uh, Feixian teaches in the History Department at Indiana U University Bloomington. He is a historian of uh, modern China with interests in how information ideas and practices were produced, uh, transmitted, uh, and consumed across different societies, not just in China, but, but broadly across East, East Asia. Uh, and a lot of our recent research has focused on the relationship between knowledge, commerce, uh, and political authority from the 1800s onwards. Uh, she received her PhD in 2012 from the University of Chicago, and before that received an undergraduate education from National Jungle University in, in Taipei and Taiwan. Uh, her most recent publication, well, actually her most recent major publication, she has had articles since, but her most recent major publication uh, was the book Pirates and Publishers, uh, A Social History of Copyright in Modern China, which I'm sure many of you have, uh, have already read. It came out last year, for, uh, published by Princeton University Press, uh, which is, it's a, as the title suggests, it's the fascinating history of copyright, uh, how it was understood, appropriated, codified, uh, and then sort of practiced as a, as a new legal doctrine. Uh, I think she spans the late Qing the final few decades of the Qing, all the way up to the, the first decade of the People's Republic of China. Uh, she's now working on a new project, uh, which examines the, what she says, commonly seen, but rarely discussed motif of empire or diguo uh, in Chinese, in Chinese popular, in, in diguo in Chinese, uh, in Chinese popular culture from uh, the late Qing uh, to the present. And uh, we will be hearing more about that project in the talk today, I imagine. Uh, before I hand things over uh, to Feixian, just a few words about, about format. Peixian will speak for about 40 to 45 minutes, uh, and then we'll follow, uh, follow that with a Q&A session of roughly the same duration. So we'll try and finish by about 5.30 or thereabouts. Uh, if you have questions and you're free to start doing this during the talk itself, uh, you're welcome to uh, use the Q&A function uh, within Zoom and, and write up your questions. Uh, I would request you to identify yourself if you can, uh, but at the same time, we are recording. So if you're not comfortable doing so, that's also perfectly fine. You can stay, you're welcome to stay anonymous. Uh, okay, so uh, without any further ado, uh, let me hand things over to uh, Professor Wang. Uh, so am I sharing the screen all right? Yeah. Okay, great. So uh, thank you uh, for the invitation and kind introduction. It's really nice to be back to Harvard. And again, and talk about manipulative myths and popular fantasies about Emperor Qianlong in China in the past 150 years. So, okay. So, 
Emperor Qianlong, was the sixth emperor of the Qing. He reigned the empire from 1735 to 1796. Under his 60 year, over 60 years reign, the Qing Empire reached its the geopolitical and it's the geopolitical and economic social superpower in its time. Qianlong's reign was an era of splendor and prosperity, as well as the pinnacle of imperial autocracy in China. Emperor Qianlong also has been one of the most popular and talked about historical figure in China. Hundreds of local delicacies and crafts claim that they have been endorsed by the emperor during his extensive imperial tours as if Qianlong's tests still hold a certain gold standard. Various merchandise were named after him in recent years. Palace museums in Beijing and Taipei gained significant profit by selling Qianlong's themed products. Not to mention that he has been the protagonist or the Ottoman villain in countless popular novels, unofficial history, plays, TV series, and films. And he is one of the cases I study in my new book. This new project, tentatively entitled Phantoms of Empire, explores the long-lasting trend in China's vibrant culture consumption of fantasizing the imperial past of China and other countries from the last day of the Qing to the present. By examining the persistent presence of the imperial motif in Sinophone popular culture, I hope to capture the China's prolonged and entangled departure from its imperial past. Qianlong would be an ideal case for this new project, not only because he left rich materials for popular imaginations, but also because his ring was the last and most familiar prosperous age of Shengshi of China for modern Chinese. He is a reminder of China's primacy in the world. And for many Chinese, Qianlong's ring may be the unspoken, unspoken default condition leading the country all to return to one day. Yet at the same time, Qianlong was also an embodiment of the imperial past that the modern Chinese state was created to overcome. So this, in this talk, I will trace uh, the segmentary formation of the vernacular myths and popular fantasies about Emperor Qianlong. As China's cultural economy, cultural economy and political climate transformed over time, new stories about Qianlong emerged to satisfy the changing desire of the audiences as well as the political authorities. These cultural products have gradually shaped a common historical memory that take the place of Qing history in most Chinese mind, despite generations of specialist effort to debunk it. At the core of the vernacular fantasies of Emperor Qianlong, I argue, lies the unsolved tension between modern Han Chinese nationalism and the legacy of a non-Han imperial prosperity, uh, non-Han imperial prosperous age. Although there are countless serious stories and unofficial histories about Qianlong produced and untold and retold in different genres in variety of media in the past century. They were mostly revolving around the following intertwined motif and themes. His birth, his romance, his power and the, the power and prosperity of the empire during his time and his extensive thousand tours. The variations of this various motif could be seen as different strategies or attempts the Chinese developed to discuss and do or reconcile with the tension between the longing and desire for a great China and the problem of Qianlong being imperial and Manchu. 
Most of this basic element of popular Qianlong myths and fantasies could be traced back to mid-19th century in oral traditions such as storytelling, shoshu, or as anecdotes in anthologies, commentary, and poetry. In the last year of the Qing, as anti-Manchu sentiment on the rise and as the Qing authority declined and eventually collapsed. This Qianlong anecdotes and rumors were gradually woven into a more coherent and comprehensive vernacular history of the Qing monarchy, which was packed of sensational sex scandal, bloody sabotages among siblings and among other terrible things. We see the first search of such titles, mostly published in Shanghai by commercial publishers in the 1910s, especially between 1914 and 1916. Titles such as Man Qing or Qing Chao Ye Shi Da Guan, like the Anzong region forbidden bestsellers Robert Downton studied. Those on official history of Qing were mostly fantasies and slender in guise of secret history to satisfy the early Republic readers' curiosity. At the same time, they reflect the change in Chinese public sentiments from discontent with the Manchu monarchy to discuss with it. The unofficial history collectively tell a story of how Icing jewelers were a promiscuous clan with no low or more low morality. Since the 1930s, there are serious historians such as Mengsen have been trying very hard to push back those popular myths, as they have been now seen by many as the real history of the thing. So the first core element in the vernacular fantasy about Qianlong is his birth. According to official records, Qianlong was born in Beijing in 1711 by Emperor Yongzhen's consort, Niu Hulu. However, in most popular unofficial histories and stories, Lady Nyohulu was not Qianlong's real mother. He was allegedly born by a Han banner maiden, Emperor Yongzhen raped in Zhehe, or, or by a certain low-ranking Han consort or mate. Another widespread version is that Qianlong was actually a son of the Chen of Haining, who got swapped with Lady Nyohulu's daughter. The sheer motif of this alternative realities is the claim that Qianlong, the most accomplished emperor of the Qing, was not Manchu, but half Han or 100% Han. This could be seen as one way for the Han Chinese audience to reconcile with the non-Han prosperous age. If it's created by one of us, then it's okay to claim it as Chinese. Another main thing, uh, of Qianlong fantasy is his colorful relationship with all kinds of women. Qianlong is well known for his devotion to Lady Fu Chai's first empress. They love each other, their 20 years marriage was happy. He wrote many poems to mourn her after her untimely death at the age of 36. However, Empress Qianlong also had a huge harem and allegedly had many affairs outside of the palace. Among the stories of his consort, the most well-known one may be the tragedy of Xiang Fei, the fragrant concubine, a Uyghur woman sent to the palace. Qianlong fell in love with her stunning beauty, but she wanted to kill the emperor to revenge for her husband and her fellow tribal men. After a failed assassination attempt, she committed suicide. As Chen's newer study unsettled concubine's argument, her introduction to the palace served as an allegory for the incorporation of Xinjiang into the Qing Empire 
and later the Chinese state. Along the same line, having to resolve to, sum to submit to the emperor could be seen as a symbol of resistance. Similar allegory could be observed in Qianlong's other romances, such as the rumor that he made a daughter of the Kongs of Qi, descendant of the Confucius, his secret mistress, or his affair with the number one courtesan in Suzhou, the cultural papers of China proper. However, the flip side of Qianlong being a sexual conqueror is that he was also a brutal womanizer. For example, rumor has that he had an affair with the wife of Fu He, who was not only an important minister of Xin, but also Lady Fu Cha's younger brother. And Fu He's son, Fu Kangang, was in fact Qianlong's black child. In one version of the story, Lady Fu Cha was so heartbroken by this affair that she committed suicide. This reinforced the grand narrative that the icing jewels or the mentions were permitted. Many other popular stories about Qianlong are associated with his southern tour. Throughout his dreams, Qianlong has six imperial tours from Beijing to Xiangnan. These massive operations are displayed of, to the Han population, but the dynastic interests and the emperor's personal authority. Well, these tours have various important military, economic, and cultural purpose. In manipulative fantasy, Emperor Channel embarked such tours mainly for personal reasons. In some versions, the real purpose of the thousand tours is to seek, is to seek his Han Yu, for example, repeating visit to the Chen Yunhai. In popular literature, Channel likes to disguise himself in Jiangnan as Han gentleman and basically did the following four things, eating, flirting, getting lost, and punish bad guys or corrupt officials. This plot of Qianlong disguise himself and punish bad guys could be traced back to a popular novel in, entitled Shen Chao Ding, Shen Guan Nian Jing, uh, the prosperous Holy Dynasty Evergreen, which was first published between 1870s and 1880s. This intriguingly could be seen as a poor Qing narrative to counter an earlier anti-Manchu story, the legend of Xilu, Xilu Chuanshuo, and it's always, and it's of thin uh, evergreen, Guanyuan So the story goes as follows. The mount of Xiaosen Daolin Temple helped the Qing to conquer a, a place called Xilu. But then they were betrayed by the Qing and got suppressed. The pupil of the Xiaolin monks then became martial art masters and warriors. They punish corrupt and abusive Manchu officials and bring justice to the society. However, in this counter-anti-Manchu version, the pupil of the Xiaolin monks were the bad guys, caused this race, and it was Qianlong and his entourage who punished those troublemakers and brought, uh, brought back social order. In 1910s, uh, Shen Chao Ding Shen Guan Nian Jing was republished, renamed as Qianlong Xia Jiangnan, Qianlong Xiaosen Zhuo, and since then has become uh, a staple of uh, classical Qianlong fantasy. Between the 1950s and early 1980s, we see another surge of popular fantasy in They were many created by Chinese authors, journalists, filmmakers who relocate to Hong Kong and Taiwan after 1949. They, their voice were widely circulated in the Sinophone world outside of China during the Cold War, but they also become available for men and audience after the, 18, after the 1980s. 
while there are some update version of classical uh, Qianlong stories, such as a novelist Gao Yang's Qianlong Yunshi, The Romance of Qianlong. There are also intriguing new diasporic reappropriation of Qianlong fantasies. These authors and filmmakers took the opportunity to describe Qianlong southern tours and, and military campaign to express certain nostalgia to a splendor rich but lost mainland and Chinese culture. Readers okay, find it. Yes. Just a second, sorry to interrupt you. I think there is some static being created for our listeners because of maybe the paper being very close to the mic. Oh, sorry. So, so if you could hold this paper away, so because people oh, are sorry. we're getting messages yeah. from people. So sorry for okay. the interruption again. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so in this new uh, stories, reader find detail and density description uh, of the landscape national site, historical sites and local customs and delicacies, for example, xiaorou or dumplings. They also approached the Han Manchu tension in a more cynical way by asking whether the Han, the good guys who believe in justice and morality should or could work with the Manchus or the bad guys who subscribe to a different political ideology to make China greater and safe. And there, and one, one, readers often find plots uh, involved in conflicts with other ethnic minority or border uh, conflicts in Xinjiang and Tibet. So let me use two examples to illustrate this new diasporic reimagination re of Emperor Qianlong. First, uh, Yongzhen, uh, sorry, first, Jingyong Su Jian En Chonglu, The Book and the Sword. Jingyong, native name Jia Liangyong, is, was a journalist and martial art novelist in Hong Kong. He was also a descendant of the scholarly Cha family of Hainan. The book and Sword was first published in 1955 and then republished in multiple times in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China. It has at least seven TV adaptations and three film versions. Bill Ang Chu, Qianlong Mrs. Miss him being a son of the Chens of Hainan and the legend of Fergan concubine. The story is about the love triangle between Qianlong, who was actually a Han, and his biological brother, Chen, Chen Jialu, Chen Jialuo, who was also the leader of an anti-Manchu red flower society, and the Hui princess, the fragrant princess, Kasli. It's also about the agreement between Chen and Qianlong to restore China to the Han and the alliance between the Red Flower Society and the Hui's against the Qing oppression. Chen Jialuo was willing to work with Qianlong and even give our fragrant princess for the greater Han revival cause. But Qianlong is a selfish villain, betraying not only the Aixin jewelers who brought him up, but also his biological Han brother and caused the death of fragrant princess. At the end of the story, the heartbroken protagonist gave up his Confucian learning and anti-Manchu mission. He went into exile in today's Xinjiang and considered to convert to Islam. Another example I would like to share is Li Hanxiang's Qianlong series. Li Hanxiang is maybe one of the most productive and popular film, made, film directors in Cold Sinophone world, most famous uh, for his period drama. In late 1970s and early 1980s, he directed four films on, about Qianlong for the Shao Brothers studio, loosely based on the Southern Tour stories I discussed earlier. These are entertaining 
and some for cynical comedies about Qianlong and his entourage's wild adventures in, China, in Jiangnan. In this series, Qianlong disguised as a rich Han gentleman wandering around Yangzhou and Suzhou, but he appeared to be ignorant about local customs and had to constantly seek advice. Through his conversation with the tea house clerk and barber, audience are reminded of the delicious snack, vibrant marketplaces of Jiangnan. However, Qianlong, uh, sorry, however, Li also wants to make a point that the so-called anti-Manchu activists were ignorant about the Manchu court, how the Manchu court functioned. For example, in the film Qianlong uh, Xiaoyangzhou, The Voyage of Emperor Qianlong, Qianlong was kidnapped by a group of anti-Manchu activists. Then there is a 10-minute scene of Qianlong explaining how his father, Emperor Yongzheng, cannot alter the succession edit because the core is multilingual. In 1983, Li Hanxiang was invited by China Film Co-Production Corporation, to direct a film called The Burning of Imperial Palace. Finally, he can film his beloved Qing period drama on location in Beijing. Owing to the reforming, reform and opening up throughout the 1980s and 1990s, Hong Kong and Taiwanese production companies could produce with their Chinese counterparts an impressive amount of period dramas, many about Qianlong. Such a co-production arrangement allow Hong Kong and Taiwanese companies to film on location at locals and enter the emerging Chinese inter entertainment market. This period drama showcased the splendor summer palace and the magnificent landscape of Inner Mongolia to Hong Kong and Taiwanese audience who previously only read about them in books. At the same time, they also reintroduced Emperor Qianlong to the mainland audience, not as an evil, fat, feudal oppressor, but as a handsome, funny dandy, a personable human being. The most successful Qianlong uh, theme TV series uh, in the Sinophone world during, the during this period must be Huan Zhu Ge Ge, Return of Pearl Emperor, uh, Return of Pearl Princess. It's a brainchild of Taiwan-based novelist and TV producer Chong Yao, who is best known for her tear-jerker romances. Return of Pearl Princess is a cultural phenomenon in the late 1990s China. Allegedly, more than half of the Chinese population watched it when the first season premiered in 1998. It, still, it may still hold the record of being the most watched TV drama in Chinese history. As I argue elsewhere, Chongyang might be inspired by the CC trilogy of the 1950 films about the Empress Elizabeth of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that became very popular in China in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Echoing CC trilogy's themes, Return of Pearl Princess, introduced Chinese audience a freedom-loving people's princess and portrayed Qianlong as a caring and largely uh, lovable father. Qing, the Qing's territorial expansion became the backdrop of the protagonist's adventure and their friendship with Tibetan, Uyghur, and even Burma princesses. 
So the Return of Pearl Princess is about the adventure of this two young girl, Xiao Lian, Xiao Yanzi, little swallow, a traveling martial art performer, and Zwei, a talented beauty who is a love child of Qianlong. The two attempt to approach the emperor during one of his thousand tours so that Zwei can fulfill his, her late mother's wish and reunited with her birth father. With her birth father. However, it got messed up. Little Swallow was misidentified as the lost princess. And Zwei, in order to accompany Little Swallow back to the Forbidden City, has to pretend to be her maid. The first season is mainly about these two young girls' experience in the Manchu Palace and how they and their newly found lovers try to fix the swap identity. Emperor Qianlong was fond of Little Swallow as she is an authentic free spirit, but others, such as the step empresses and her evil uh, wet nurse Zhong Momo consider her and Zui too vulgar and lack discipline. Many highlights in season one are Little Swallow's comical learning process to become a princess. Imperial splendor and material enjoyments were introduced to audience through Little Swallow's perspective as a commoner. While Qianlong and the audience have a great laugh at her straightforward and sometimes silly resistance against the imperial rules. A remark on how those rules are pretentious and humane could also be seen as a modern critique to the hypocritical feudal imperial authorities. Uh, what you see, uh, sorry, wait, uh, wait, sorry, what you see uh, here is a typical uh, example. Several of the core scenes and motif of Qianlong fantasy are reinvented in Return of Pearl Princess to yield a happy ending for everyone. We see the motif of the promiscuous uh, action jewels in season one, when the main characters almost commit uh, incest. Qianlong's son Yongqi falls in love with the little swallow who is his nominal sibling. And at one point, Qianlong also expressed his interest of making Zui his consort. Luckily, such crisis, uh, such moral crisis is resolved after the true identity uh, of the two girls uh, are revealed. In season two, the fragrant concubine escaped from her tragic fate as Little Swallow and Zui helped her leave the palace and reunited with her lover secretly. In the second half of the season two, Little Swallow found her biological brother, an anti-Manchu swordsman. As it turns out, Emperor Qianlong was the murderer of Little Swallow's parents. However, after observing the affection between Little Swallow and Qianlong, the brother decides to keep the secret from her little sister so that she doesn't need to confront this ultimate moral dilemma. In 1999, before Chinese audience can watch the second season of Return, uh, Return of Pearl Princess, another blockbuster teen period drama was aired. This time in China's national TV station, the CCTV. Yongzheng Wang Chao, Yongzheng Dynasty is based on earlier Hearst novel. It focuses on the core struggles, anti-corruption and concentration of power 
during the reigns of Qianlong's grandfather, Emperor Kangxi, and his father, Emperor Yongzhe. It became the most watched CCTV drama of the all time and won almost all the possible TV awards in China that year. The success of Yongzhen dynasty marked the beginning of a new era for Qing period drama after it was endorsed by the PRC leader, such as Jiang Zemin. Premier Zhu Rongji was reported, reportedly moved to Tia by Emperor Yongzhen's tireless effort to reform the Qing bureaucracy. Audience also found Yongzhen dynasty very relevant to their own experience. They saw many parallels between high Qing and the late 20th century China. Qing thus become an allegory for contemporary China. The Iron Blood Premier Zhu Rongji was compared with the Iron Blood Emperor Yongzhen. For many people who are critical to the regime, such as Liu Xiaopo, the official endorsement of Yongzhen dynasty testified the party leadership's authoritarian, if not imperial nature. One such allegory was established and acknowledged. The Qing period drama in China could no longer be pure entertainment. They could be read or overread. They, be, they could be read or overread as commentary of the current regime. Owing to the great success of Yongzhen Dynasty throughout the 2000s, we see a new surge of Qing drama and novels about the three great Qing emperors. However, the audience reaction toward these new fantasies are not fully under the control of the regime, and they cause unforeseen problems especially for the increasingly sensitive national radio and television administration, So these are some of the unforeseen developments. Well, there is a sequel of Yongzhen Dynasty and Emperor Qianlong. The viral ser TV series about Emperor Qianlong in the 2000s is this one, Xiaolan the adequate Qi Xiaolan series. This series, like an earlier similar comedy, Grand Chancellor uh, Hunchback Liu, Zaixiang Liu Luo Guo, is following the tradition of the Hanxiang's Qianlong, Qianlong's adventure in Jiangnan. But now the story of Emperor Qianlong and his ministers and this battle of wits is retold under the banner of, of anti-corruption. However, the character who won the audience hearts in this series was the ultimate corrupt official of the Qing, He Shen. Many audience consider him the real role model, as one common says, quote, if you want to survive in the organization, you need to learn how He Shen interact with Emperor Qianlong, unquote. Another unforeseen aftermath of Yongzhen dynasty is that Chinese audiences, especially female audiences, project their romantic affection to Emperor Yongzhe and fantasize about traveling back to Qing to meet him or his siblings and enjoy imperial splendor. It gave the rise of a subgenre in Chinese internet literature called Qingchuan, literally means traveling back to Qing genre. The popularity of the Qingchuan genre is worrisome sign for the regime. It indicates A, the belief that living in the imperial past is happier, B, a desire to escape from contemporary communist dominate China. Great national radio, television, and 
National Radio and Television Administration eventually have to ban such time travel plot, saying it, quote, disrespects history, unquote. The third and probably a more dangerous new development in popular culture production about Qing history may be the rise of the so-called palace struggle genre, gongdou. In short, palace struggle fictions and dramas are about the heron, how imperial consuls sabotage each other, compete for emperor's love, and give birth to male heirs while killing other people's sons. As many cultural observers have pointed out in China, when public discussion about high politics may be restricted, such palace struggle genres become a substitute for political drama. The Heron is a mirror image of various hierarchical organizations in China, big corporation, the government, and the Communist Party. In that case, depicting the Heron of the Qing Empress as a brutal battleground of power hunger, ruthless woman who wanted to climb up to the top of a hierarchy could be read as a negative commentary to the current party state. It was in this context, Qianlong's heron became a political problem for the PRC, especially after the current regime expressed its geopolitical ambition more explicitly and after Chinese and foreign mass media start to directly or indirectly compare Xi Jinping with Emperor Qianlong. The tension between modern Chinese nationalism and the legacy of Qianlong's prosperous reign remain. But now it's less about Qianlong being a Manchu, but him being imperial. Two of the three most successful TV series in 2018, for example, revolve around Emperor Qianlong, or pre precisely speaking, her heron. It's his heron. Uh, Yanxi Gongyue, story of Yanxi Palace. It's about, uh, it's, a, it's about the story of Yingluo, how she ruthlessly climbed up to the stair of heron hierarchy, from a maid to the rank of noble, noble council. First to investigate her sister's mysterious death and then to revenge for her master and mentor Lady Futa. Along the way, she won the heart of Emperor Qianlong. Loosely based on the story of noble council Ling, Ling Fei, em Emperor Jiaqing's mother, the story of Yanxi Palace was streamed more than 15 billion times when it premiered uh, in Aichi. Rui Zhuan, Rui's Royal Love in the Palace, was, is the sequel of the palace struggle blockbuster Hougong Zhen Huan Zhuan, Empresses in the Palace. It's about the story of Qianlong's step empress, Wulanala, how her love toward the emperor was consumed over time by his distrust and the endless heron sabotage against her. Disillusioned and heartbroken, she made a big quarrel with the emperor, cut her hair, which was considered as an unacceptable offense for the Manchus, and technically divorced uh, the emperor. Premiered uh, in Tencent video, Tenxun Shiping. It was streamed more than, it was streamed more than uh, 7.5 billion times. They quickly made their way to the regional TV station, but in late January 2019, they managed to find TV screens around the country. Both were suddenly taken down 
taken off air after state-owned newspaper Beijing Daily accused such drama of being, quote, incompatible with the core socialist values, unquote. Their scenes, according to this editorial, were that they made a fetish of imperial lifestyle and idealized emperors and officials of the feudal past. About a month ago, on September 27, 2020, a few days before the National Day, these two dramas were further taken off from the online streaming platform, and now they are unavailable for Chinese audience in China. So how are these two most recent popular Qianlong fantasy incompatible with the core socialist values? First of all, these two dramas satisfy Chinese audience appetite for the over-the-top imperial extravaganza. The settings and the costumes are extremely lavish. To create a sense of authenticity, both production team make great effort to replicate imperial gowns, accessories, even dishes. They introduce and highlight some of the less known Manchu customs, uh, such as the triple earrings that uh, you see in this slide. However, many of these details are derived from the publicity campaign and commercial commercialization initiative of the museum palace in recent years to make Emperor Qianlong chic and cute for contemporary museum goers. For example, Emperor Qianlong's obsession with stamping seal on his collection has been highlighted in the palace museum and then depicted in the story of Anxi Palace to create a sense of history authenticity, historical authenticity. But then there is more than that. All this imperial extravaganza the audience seen in, see in these two dramas can be purchased if they have money. Yanzi Palace all of a sudden became a popular site in the Forbidden City. The Palace Museum sell imperial thin lipsticks and stamps of Qianlong. And Taobao, uh, the shopping website, one can order replica of the accessory dresses and hairpins of, in, of the imperial consuls they see in these two dramas. However, such merchandise exists and soaring indicate a considerable desire and demand uh, of the imperial style uh, to be fulfilled. These two dramas producer are fully aware that Emperor Qianlong's heron is completely sensitive, and they were very cautious about the plot. They made some conscious decision on how to portray Qianlong's multi-ethnic heron safely in order to pass the content review. For example, in Rui's royal love uh, in the palace, while the Mongolian consuls and their influence are stressed, the stable, fragrant concubine story is told in an obscure fashion. The image you see uh, on the right uh, is the uh, image uh, of uh, uh, Imperial Council Han Xiangjian, uh, later Council Rongfei, uh, Council Rong. She is not depicted as a Uyghur, as it should be, but now she is from a fictional Han tribe or freezing tribe, and she dresses like a Central Asian Russian doll. Praises for Qianlong's imperial magnificence could easily be read as a nostalgia for feudal past. That's a criticism of socialist revolution, or even worse, a sign 
that many want the People's Republic of China to become a new empire. But another potential and fatal problem is how this two-period drama portray the Heren of Qin, Emperor Qianlong, especially if we take the Qing as an allegory of the present PRC. So what you see here is a hierarchy of the Heren and also some sort of social network analysis of all the consorts. In major consorts in, appear uh, in one of the drama. So in both the story of Yanxi Palace and Ruiz's ro royal love in the palace, consorts form factions and alliance to survive or to be their rivals. The winner of the game are often not the most virtuous consort, but the most ruthless and clever ones. In both stories, we see consorts compete for the emperor's attention, not for love, but for power and leverage. And those who really devote themselves to the emperor end up dying, end up died heartbrokenly. As the protagonist Inro remarked to Qianlong in the story of Yanxi Palace, he was just like a big pig tartar, da zhu Every woman in the heron wants to have a bite of it because he is the solid, he is the only source of power. In Ruiz's royal love in the palace, Qianlong is further portrayed as a good emperor, but a terrible husband, because he's erratic, moody, paranoid, jealous, jealous, unfaithful, and most importantly, selfish. Is this a criticism to the current regime or reader? For the national radio and TV uh, administration reviewers, maybe there is no such thing as reading too much into the popular fantasies about Emperor Qianlong, the Qing, or China's imperial past. But for some Chinese audience, the authority are being paranoid and overly sensitive and stupid. As this online comment post on Weibo on September 28, 2020, about a month ago, when the topic Ruiz's royal love in palace has been taken off, become the top one hard search train in Weibo. We may not be able to see any new Qing period drama aired in China anytime soon, especially given the fact that it will soon be 2021, the centennial of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. But the fascination with Emperor Qianlong is not disappearing, it's just being suppressed and the tension between the modern Han Chinese nationalism and the imperial legacy of prosperity remain unsolved. And I will stop here and I'm looking forward to your comments and questions. Great, thank you. Thank you so much, Kaishan. That was really, really fascinating. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, uh, we'll start getting questions, uh, but I thought maybe I could start off by just asking you your reflections on uh, one, one thing that I thought was very interesting, the, the only time in so many of the images and so many of the um, uh, uh, plays and uh, the, the TV dramas and the movies that you talk about, that 1793 came up was in the foreign publication, in the economy, yes. right? So I was wondering if you can reflect on sort of the ways in which that legacy plays out in very different, it is a legacy as far as Western understandings of the Qing and Western understandings of China are still constructed in some ways as being sort of the defining moment. Whereas, as you are discovering, as far as an internal audience in China is concerned, 
there's so much else to actually be interested about, obsessed about even, about Qianlong. So I was wondering uh, what, your, what your thoughts on that kind of sort of, the, the persistence of that kind of odd dichotomy is in some ways. Yeah, I would say that like we do see similarities between the Western media portrayal and the Chinese public sentiment regarding like the rise of China now or the returning of China to the global power vis-a-vis the heighting. But there are like certain differences in their uh in, 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 in their emphasis on like, why, why, why Emperor Qianlong. And for most of the Chinese audiences, the early Qianlong is the part that they fascinated about. And, but in most of the uh, Western media, it seems that like, this is a, an allegory to reinforce the idea that China being authoritarian and oppressive. And, but interestingly, like, in now both uh, uh, popular discussions about like, the, 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 the similarity or the parallel between Xi and Emperor uh, Qianlong. They were all avoiding like, the later uh, years of Qianlong, which is like once you reach the pivot and then you start to decline. And that's the part that like, you can see like, why the Chinese audience and the Chinese uh, 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 popular media producer will consciously avoid and, and 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 but you see such comparison more explicitly in 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 western media and but you see this motif like reoccur again 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 in a very ambivalent and indirect way in uh chinese led netizens discussion great yeah no, that, that's really interesting uh, so I would uh, the the Q and just let the audience know the Q and A uh, session we're we're you know well into it so please uh, uh, feel free and and type up your questions and I'll read them out to Fatian and to the rest of the uh, the audience and we can have uh, we can have a discussion so we welcome welcome questions at this stage um, so as we as we wait for uh, questions to come maybe you can talk a little bit also about where you where this particular uh, part of your your research fits into the larger book project so. Um, as we wait for questions, you can maybe- Yeah, uh, so this is, this is a good question, right? <laughs> uh, so this project, so this project emerged uh, by accident and, uh, and ideally, right, this would be one of the chapters uh, of the book. So the ideas I'm going to examine uh, different cases. Some are uh, fantasies about China's own imperial past, and some are uh, Chinese fantasies uh, of foreign imperial past. And but like, I'm yet to decide what are the cases I'm going to include uh, in, my, in my book. But like the emperor of Qing uh, would definitely play an important part mm -hmm. uh, in this book. Okay, great. So we, we have a question that's just come in from, from Meng Jiang, who says, uh, thanks for this super interesting lecture, Peixian. The 20th century is certainly a departure from the previous imperial period, but I wonder if you see any commonalities between the post-imperial fantasies about Qianlong and previous fantasies, fictions, rumors about the royalties of a fallen dynasty, like Ming era fantasies mm. or Song, Song dynasty emperors, 
So yeah, if you were to situate the obsession of the Qing vis-a-vis -vis other, um, other sort of imperial. Yeah, so yes, there are like similarities that one can, uh, one can observe. And because like following the traditional dynastic circle, cycle narrative, like one dynasty fallen as many caused by uh, the degeneration of the moral of the emperor. So there was like, yeah, the, the rumors about the herons are always a popular topic. But I think what is interesting, particularly interesting in Qing's case, is that a lot of late in the early Republic fantasies and unofficial history about the Qing monarchy focused on how immoral the Manchus were. And so, so if you read like, like early Republic, like publication of unofficial Qing history, like basically like every dynasty, every emperor, every empresses of Aishinjou, they had extensive affairs with other people. And like, there is no like sibling love, no filial piety whatsoever. And, 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 and so I think this is like a, in a way, some sort of like racialized description about about uh, about the Aishinjou, and so so I think this kind of like sex undertone is what make uh, the unofficial history or the popular fantasies about the Qing monarchy uh, special in comparison with like other popular fantasies about the fallen empire. Mm -hmm. Great. We have uh, another question from uh, Peter Perdue, uh, who asks, uh, I heard you mention in passing that Qing imperial expansion is reflected in the series. Uh, how is this presented? Does it focus on battle scenes or on landscape or on the encouragement of tourism, for example? Uh, has the focus changed over time? Uh, the earlier series on Nurhachi and Kangxi had a lot on battles, as, as, as he recalls. Okay, so. Okay, let me let me read the uh the 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 question more. Oh sure, yeah. Yeah. In in what series? Now, they have, they, yeah, the, the imperial expansion is depicted in different ways, like in different series. Uh so for example, in uh so for example, in many martial art novels uh, in 1950s and 19, between 1950s and 1980s. So like you will have like, you will have the presence of a military campaign and like battles, major battle scenes are not so important because the Chinese uh, martial art novelists would like to highlight that the actual Game changers are those super, like, are those super martial arm, hand martial arm masters who can like overcome like the troops and then went to the went to assess the 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 the, the general or, or etc. And like in uh in Return of Pearl Princess series, for example then you do see like a depiction of like battle scenes because that's like when 
my hiring extras are very cheap in China. And so they want to show, showcase my, the, 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 the extension of imperial splendor. And but over time, like when we see like the, 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 the allegory or the metaphor of, the, uh, of imperial expansion uh, resonate in the intimate relationship between different main characters. So they form friendship and you always have like a, a foreign or ethnic minority, a princess coming to the court, uh, married to like either the emperor or the uh, or, or prince or prince. And, and you can constantly see like how they would then also differentiate who are the closer ethnic minority and who are the like outsiders such as like uh, uh, Burma, like Russia and, 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 and et cetera. And but more recently, very interestingly, like the more recent, uh, the more recent uh, Qing period drama, I get the impression that they are avoiding such battle scenes. And so like you see not the imperial expansion, but the ethnic minorities submit to the imperial authority. And, 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 and some of the sensitive ethnic conflicts in the high Qing were consciously avoided uh, in, 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 in the TV series. For example, in Yongzheng dynasty, Yongzheng Wang Chao, there is no mention of one of the most important uh, minister uh, at the time, Ge Tai, and what he did uh, in the southern, uh, southwest uh, frontier. So that's, that's really interesting. So that means there isn't much talk of, uh, what was the phrase? Chen Long called himself the, the grand old man of the 10 campaigns, right? There's not, not much emphasis on that kind of history uh, at all in some ways. Well, they, uh, they, they, they were mentioned, but they were always at the backdrop. Right, in, in, integration in is much more sort like of a, a reverse of uh, focus. So right. they, they move the they move the main narrative in official history, the military campaign, et cetera, to the margin and move the marginal narrative about like romance, uh, personal adventure to the center of the narrative. Right, great. Okay, so we have another question uh, now on the, and you can read it too, but I'll read it out for the audience uh, that takes us to the Republican period. Uh, this is an anonymous attendee who asks, uh, for the Republican period, are you mainly going to analyze the narratives presented in stories about Qianlong, or are you going to investigate the readers' opinions, the reception, and responses to stories as you do for contemporary China? If so, where to look for such readers' responses for the Republican era? Thank you. Ah, uh, hmm, this is a great question. Uh, so I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to collect uh, readers' opinions and, and, and responses to the unofficial histories uh, of Qianlong or uh, of the Qing monarchy, but it's not so easy to find. Uh, most of the readers' responses I found so far are written by like, intellectuals in one way or the other. And so, so, so their responses are very sophisticated in a way they then based on those rumors start serious pub academic debate uh, regarding like, who is 
who who is Tianlong's actual mother and 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 etc. But in conversation, in to by observing their conversation with each other, uh, one can get a sense that like by the time many of the core motifs and elements have become common knowledge among educated uh, Chinese readers. And but as for like uh, more commoner or semi-illiterate uh, readers, uh, I don't know like, how I would be able to uh, collect enough reader's response uh, for the Republic period. But if you know any tips, please let me know and I would be very appreciated. Uh, yeah, I mean, reception reception history is always such a challenge uh, for, for, for all of us, I think, especially when it comes to the, the popular culture um, in some ways. Um, I was wondering also if you can tell us a little bit more about sort of the, the political economy behind the production of these, uh, these shows. So because you talked about an earlier phase in the late, I guess, the 80s and the early 90s, where you had a lot of money and investment coming in from Hong Kong and Taiwan. And that seems to clearly have changed in more recent years. Uh, but what is the relationship between sort of uh, from a political economy, sort of who's, where the money comes from and where the investment is uh, for these kinds of shows? And is there something distinctive about them vis-a-vis -vis other kinds of, uh, uh, you know, sort of because the film industry in China has taken off tremendously also in the past few years. So there's clearly uh, different spaces where this kind of money can be invested. Have you had the chance to sort of um, get a sense of what, what that story is? Uh, okay. Yeah, so... So I would say that like producing uh, period dramas in China, especially producing Qing period drama in China, it's a highly risk investment in recent years. And, but you can also see like the emerge of sort of like, a, so you, you have like two competing forces. One is the for-profit, commercial uh, production companies and regional TV stations who see this is, there is this demand and, and, and they would like to fulfill uh, the audience's de desire. And on the other hand, you have the, uh, the, the national radio and television administrations who also want to see high quality period drama, but were reluctant to really like let it go, like uh, as as the as the as, as the, the 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 market, uh, uh, let it go as the market uh, uh, desire, and so so oftentimes what happened is that uh, oftentimes what happened in most recent years about like in the in the past ten years, uh, many of the Many of the teen period drama are based on popular online literature first. And so, so you have different medias uh, and different medias are subject to different kinds of censorship. And so, so you can see like, for example, uh, like the Empresses in the Palace was originally a, 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 a online film, a, a non online fiction uh, based, set in a fictional dynasty and but data was converted into like a, a, a story about, about Yongzheng. And then it also will have to went through various, uh, uh, have to went through various uh, 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 rounds of review. And you can see 
my those reviews uh, uh, the, those reviews could be seen as a, a, a place where these two forces like negotiate uh, with, with, with each other. And but like the problem of like investing uh, in such like huge like project is that the risk the, 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 the major risk is that you never know what the national uh, radio tele television administration uh, are thinking. Mm -hmm. And so in recent year, there were multiple cases uh, when companies invest millions and millions of money and, 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 and envisioning there will be a market for it. And then the whole production went in then because they never got past uh, the, 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 the authorities review. And so every night, all the money was thrown into water. And after several incidents as such occurred, and you start to see a new wave of self-censorship among the producers. They now were more reluctant to invest like millions of money, rebuild the palace and like make all these lavish costumes. They would then retreat to like a smaller budget and safer mm -hmm. topic. And so in this regard, you can say that like the authority did in certain way like manage the situation. Mm -hmm. Great, very interesting. Um, we have a, a follow-up question to Peter's actually from, from Meng Jiang again, uh, who says, uh, I personally have found it very awkward that in uh, Zheng Huanzhuan, for example, Yongzheng presented himself largely as a Han emperor, so exalting uh, Huaxia, the sort of Chineseness, in front of the Zungar delegation. Do you think the popular perception of the Qing as reflected in these dramas still mostly sees the Qing as a Chinese dynasty, despite the sort of meticulous reproduction of Manchu dress and Manchu rituals? Uh, yes, my answer is yes. So, 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 <laughs> So yes, uh, throughout all this, like in all this uh, TV series uh, and, 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 and films and also in, uh, yeah, in, 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 in popular fictions as well. Like even though now you have this idea, like even though now you do see like the creators put more effort in recreating or emphasize uh, the Manchuness of like the Icing Jural uh, quote, but like the narrative is essentially itself as it's a Han Center narrative, and so in a way you can say part of the uneasiness or part of the tension that early uh, Republic readers encountered is that they were in the process of making Qing emperors. Uh, Chinese emperor, and instead of like constantly remind themselves that no, they were Manchus. Okay, we have um, uh, another question from an anonymous attendee about the <laughs> uh, what you what you mentioned at the end about the dramas being taken off. So they ask, are these contemporary dramas that have been removed due to censorship completely unavailable for the Chinese uh, to the Chinese public? Or are the other uh, illegal versions that continue to circulate in uh, Chinese societies? And by that I mean, I guess they mean the larger 
sort of Chinese community globally speaking, not just uh, in, in, in on the mainland. Okay, so this like connect back to my first book probably. Uh, yeah, the short answer is yes and yes. Uh, so if you try very hard to find illegal websites, you can still have, you can still access, I think, the full collection of uh, these two dramas. Or alternatively, you can use VPN and visit, like now, interestingly, like you have, you can use VPN and visit YouTube, Netflix and Amazon Prime because they are available outside of the Chinese market. And, but a more recent and very interesting development I noticed is that yes, the whole drama by episode by episode was not available, but netizens are making short clips and upload them to like highlights of different episodes and upload them uh, to Weibo or, uh, or uh, TikTok. So they are still available online to for Chinese audience, not as like a whole, but like the fragments. Fragments are still available there and it's impossible for the authority to completely ban them. So this is very much like the way you can catch all the highlights of the Game of Thrones by going <laughs> to YouTube. It's kind of very similar, I guess. Uh, but so a linked question to the previous one. Um, I'm thinking of sort of the recent popularity of a show like uh, like Ertugul, right, which is about the founding of the the Ottoman Empire, uh, a Turkish yes. TV show that's become quite popular globally now, uh, and it's being watched. And that is informing. So maybe originally meant for a Turkish audience, you know, con conceptualized for a Turkish audience, but now it's taken on a, a sort of global appeal, and then is informing a particular globe, you know, sort of informing an understanding of uh, Ottoman history and sort of a Turkish maybe nationalist narrative in some ways. Is there a similar pattern that is emerging? Is there a wider audience that these shows have been able to create? Or is that a part of the, the attempt even? Or is it the, like, how is the audience being being conceived of, I guess is the, is the Yeah, so yes, this is like something I'm still trying to figure out. Uh, because I noticed that there are similar phenomena uh, or like in, in Turkey, in Russia, in, India of this kind of revival of like magnificent TV uh, period drama mm -hmm. and accompanied with the rise of a more conservative like nationalist agenda. And they were mainly made for domestic audience at, this, at the beginning. But because of this globalization and also like the various on, online streaming platforms are like hunger for new content many of them may, um, become available. Many of them become available for a, a, a global, uh, for, for global uh, audiences. And so, so, and so that also caused a, a very interesting debate in China uh, when these two TV dramas were banned. Because on the one hand, like they were like widely successful in, in, in Japan, in Southeast Asia, uh, and, and are also now available in the United States and elsewhere. And they became the window for foreign uh, audience who are interested in China 
into what they consider as the authentic Chinese history and the authentic Chinese culture. So some uh, promoter or supporter of such TV drama would say, no, like you see, this is like the expansion of like the, the pop, like Chinese culture. This is like good for like the soft power of China. But on the other hand, some would argue against such proposal by, by saying that, but like if what the foreign audience see about China is all about the sabotage, betrayal, and like a bloody like rivalries, like would they really be attracted by Chinese culture? And what kind of Chinese culture they were learning? And but but in terms of this 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 similar phenomena we see in other parts of the world, I'm yet to figure out a way to how to 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 situate the Chinese case and compare the Chinese case with like the Turkish uh, a case and the neo-Ottomanism. And but yeah, so any suggestion would be like, very helpful. There's actually a linked question uh, this, uh, to the, uh, the idea of like what conceptions of culture are being, being presented or uh, what is the understanding? Uh, so another anonymous attendee asks, uh, does the meticulous representation in these dramas of Manchuness extend to the Manchu language? So how do these dramas attend to the, the fact that the Qing was a multilingual uh, empire and multilingual society? So this is another very interesting uh, a phenomena. No, they are not multilingual. <laughs> so like all this drama were made for modern, mostly Han Chinese audience. So you do see very peculiarly, like no matter where where they where those people are from, like the Manchus, the Hans, the Mongols, uh, the Korean consorts, the Uyghur, like the the Miao people, and even the 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 the, the European Jesuits, they all speak fluent Putonghua. <laughs> and using Chinese uh, uh, phrases. And so, 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 so yes, like they did try to like present like the ethnic, multi-ethnic nature of the Qing empire in a material form. But in terms of the language is like, a, it's purely mandatory. And, but in comparison, if you watch a uh, Korean period drama, was set like around this uh, a similar period of time. They will see like the in those Korean period drama, the Manchu, the Qing officials were actually speaking in Manchu instead of Mandarin, and so 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 actually from the Korean perspective, like like Qing was multilingual, and but from the Chinese audience perspective, yes, of course, the Qing is is now. Not, not Qing is not multilingual. It's like for them, like they all speak in one language, they all speak one language and that's Mandarin Chinese. And they only discuss and comment on the fact that there are Manchu language in Tibetan and, 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 and Mongolian and etc. But that never, that was never like materialized or presented in a systematic way in most of the, 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 the in most of the, the period drama. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's interesting. It leads me to think about 
sort of, and I'm, I'm again basing this off partly to sort of what I'm familiar with uh, has been happening in India with regard to the way in which history is being written. And you talked about this sort of rightward shift, shift sort of a, a kind of neoconservative moment where nationalism has become important globally. And in that context, uh, a lot of this has to do with rewriting histories, right? So claiming that our history has been incorrectly written and we are going to present a correct version of history. Uh, so do, do you see uh, sort of uh, any, any kind of link between them, this kind of pop culture and, and more sort of more traditional forms of, of, sort of sort of more traditional means of being didactic, so textbooks, the ways in which this history is actually taught? Um, is, there, is there any connection that you see or, or, or not really? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Can you repeat your question again? Yeah. I'm so, trying so to... my question was, was was about sort of the ways in which um, sort of more textbooks and things like that, the ways in which they are being uh, in many places they're being rewritten to accord to this with this more neoconservative sort of uh, uh, usually ethno ethno nationalist kinds of. Uh, narratives about, about the history of the nation, history of the people, and so on. Uh, and to the extent that ethno-nationalism has become an important element in recent Chinese politics also, um, is there a relationship between that level of social re-engineering and then the kind of more pop popular culture that you are looking at, sort of, uh, or is it? Hmm. Yeah, this is something that I haven't looked into, like, very systematically. Hmm. And, but, one do see this tension uh, between what most people learn from popular uh, histories and, and those period dramas and novels about like China's past and the more dogmatic narrative that one finds in textbook or government publications. And so, so, so um, like, you do see commentaries especially in places like Zhihu uh, or uh, yeah, mostly Zhihu and some also on, 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 on Weibo and also some of the like Weixin Gong Zhonghao. You do see like this kind of, you do see this attempt from, from, the, from, 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 from the society or from the grassroots to sort of like question it seems that the real history is more juicy. It's juicier and more complicated than what learn what they learned uh, in what they learned in in high school. But like reversely, there is also a now I think of it. There is also a reverse conversation that one can find. How those standardized uh, textbooks also shaped the popular understanding about, uh, about the imperial past of China. So like one of the common strategy that if you, if someone traveled back in time, if, if someone traveled back to the period, Kangxi period, like oftentimes like, I won't say 10 out, nine out of 10, but like one thing most, most of the time traveler would do is to find potato and sweet potato and corn. <laughs> and then there's definitely like an, an episode of how they promote the usefulness of corn and sweet potato and potato. And that led to the possibility of the village or the possibility 
of the country depends on like their role in 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 the hiding society after they travel back to that. And you can also see like some of the elements of the so-called uh, like early like uh, the the emergence of like early capitalism like that what they learn in high school textbook will then re-elaborate re in those uh, uh, time traveling uh, stories. There would be okay. I learned from I, I learned from high school history book that so and so is going to become the emperor. And or like there is this new technique to uh, 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 to produce more yam, and so we need to. I need to like. I need to. I need. I then I then then they can recreate that and and sort of like in the ideal alternative universe, like in some of the cases, then they speed up the development of China. And so that might decline in later Qianlong uh, 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 era would never occur. And mm -hmm. so, so in a way you can see that that's how the popular culture or the popular narratives were also subject mm -hmm. to, 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 to the logic and, 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 and the framework of official narrative about the evolution of Chinese history. Yeah, that is very interesting. Um, so uh, maybe we have time for a couple more questions. We just have uh, one has come up again that sort of builds on an earlier question, um, which asks, uh, so Feshian mentioned that the talk today would probably take up a single book chapter in her new book. Uh, I would love to hear more about the kind of case studies and the kinds of sources that she is thinking will make up the other chapters in the book. So maybe if you can tell us one other case story or, or, or introduce. Uh, okay. Yeah. So. So like, at one point, I was thinking of making the whole book just about the popular fantasies of Qing emperors and empresses. And so if that's the case, then there will be a chapter about Yongzhen and likely also a chapter about Empress Daozhi Cixi. And so, but what we see here is that like, a lot of this imperial motifs and scenes uh, and grand narrative they of about Yongzhen and about Qianlong and about Cixi, they were all intertwined. But each of them are taking on different, they have different emphasis. Like for example, that a key word uh, for Qianlong would be prosperity and expansion. The key word for Yongzhen and would be suppression. And, and assassination mm. and and also my secret police. And so a lot of the popular uh, 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 fantasies about him was revolved around that. And my Emperor Daozhi Cixi, then it would be about mostly my her sexual my scandals. And, uh, and, but I'm also thinking of incorporating my cases about a uh, Chinese discussion of other people's imperial past. So, so for example, French Revolution uh, would be one chapter to be like how the French Revolution, how the discussion of French Revolution helped Chinese to envision in Latin and post-imperial China. And also this constant comparison between ancient regime and China 
by Fang Leiting to like uh, 10 years ago. Uh, it's also like, one thing. And like the uh, CC trilogy is one of the other example about like how Austro-Hungarian empire in comparison with like British empire and French empire became the safe empire for Chinese to fall in love with, uh, as well as probably like um, uh, the more recent uh, uh, surge of tourists uh, in Europe and particularly like uh, uh, in, 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 in Britain and uh, would also be probably a, a, a case, but I'm still like deciding and shaping, deciding what the cases I want to include and include and, 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 and what this book would, would look like. And in terms of materials, so it's like a wild range of materials. I'm familiar with most of the published popular culture products, but now I'm also trying to extend that to uh, merchandise, uh, travel pro traveling programs and uh, 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 many of other things. For example, the piece I published uh, about the Chinese obsession with uh, Empress Elizabeth, like, a, a big proportion of that is analysis of uh, exhibitions and, uh, and, 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 and CC thin uh, commodities available uh, for Chinese market. And so, so it's still very full as you're taking into its shape. Well, it sounds fascinating, and it sounds like uh, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to sort of see uh, an, an analysis of this sort of wider pop culture, the way it's emerging, uh, in, in, and, and the parallels that you are able to draw. I think so. As you're talking about Elizabeth, I was also thinking about the way in which Henry VIII looms so large in England for for the imagination of what England is and the role yeah. that he has played, you know, in some ways. So the parallels are quite striking. Uh, so we are almost at time now. So I think I I, I I should sort of maybe conclude by thanking you and saying that really looking forward to the book. And uh, and thank you again for joining us. Um, and uh, thank you to the audience for, for your great questions and for being here today. And uh, join us in uh, two weeks time to uh, listen to Kovel Meiskins. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much.